Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, do it! I did take your suggestion. Okay. And do a blog this morning. It was good. I, th- you know, the point is good of what he's saying. I, th- you know, that that a false incarnation. That's that Zizek. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, no. this is wonderful. This is. I don't know if you get into. Do you get into Zizek? Oh, in the blog, yeah. This, yeah. I, not, I just mention him. I just say okay. this. This overlaps with yeah. the Lacanian reading of Zizekian reading of Romans seven. Yeah, because that was my idea. Is that like. Well, you have like the negative in Zizek and Lacan, you know, with them explaining like what literally what in Christian terms is a false incarnation of the ego of the construct of the self. And then in Maximus, you have the the real, the rea- the true our incarnation, you know, in Christ that actually produces something that's actual, that has real existence, that that, that is a real participation in being. It's not a lie. To me, that's a really interesting. I think it's true. Right. That's the I've most important. Convinced. Yeah. yeah. I think it's true. I think that Zizek and Lacan, these guys have hit on something that's a profound description of what's actually happening with human subjectivity, the subject of the lie, as you put it in your book. And then there's the subject of the truth, you know, uh, which Christ incarnates in us. And I was really listening back to Jordan. I was just really impressed with, you know, and and I do think that, you know, Bogakov does a whole thing with Mary, the Theotokos, you know, that it's important for his anthropology. Uh, he does a similar thing with uh, John the Forerunner, so that they're incarnating the life of Christ as models, as, you know, victor, you know, sort of victors over, uh, you know, quote unquote, original sin. It's not that they didn't have the propensity, or well, I don't know if the propensity is the right word, or like the possibility of sin but their great victory is that they didn't you know they didn't succumb to you know the temptations of you know in 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 the most human apart from christ right so that's why like in the bulgakov likes the deus icon which is a profound icon where it has christ in the center and it has the theotokos you know to the right john the baptist to the left they both have their hands up like this in prayer they're followed by the saints and bulgakov's picture is is that is that this is the christian family uh in prayer you know, to Christ praying together, the male and John the Baptist, the female and the Theotokos, Christ, the perfect human, all in conjunction praying with one another. But the reason why is, and that's even the, the icons of the saints, it's not, you know, the theology for Bulgakov of the icon is that, you know, what makes the saints the saints is that they have incarnated the life of Christ in their own life. And so, in other words, they would just be a picture of some person or whatever. But what makes them a saint, what what qualifies them as even having an icon is that they are reflecting the glory of Christ, you know, that they have incarnated the way of Christ in, in particular ways, you know, through martyrdom, et cetera. You know, they become worthy, you know, of being canonized as saints or whatever. But uh, that, the you know, I like the picture of Father Gregory, my uh, my priest there in um a Holy Trinity in Indy talked about a story of of a guy who, excuse me, it was an icon that whenever the guy, somebody found it and it was completely, you know, just, you couldn't even see who it was. It was completely dirty. It was completely faded, uh, maybe even like disfigured in some ways. 
and like you literally just couldn't tell who the person was but then there was this a master sort of iconographer who refinished you know who refinished it and retouched it and then you know it brought it back into like this full beautiful picture of, of one of the saints and that you know father gregory said that that is that is what um sanctification that's what salvation is is that god is um always restoring his image in us to make us shining you know yeah yeah sort of like shining icons you know that, that christ is the icon of god and that we're the icons of christ but that we are so because we incarnate instead of the lie uh we incarnate the life of god and that mary the theotokos is the and I do think that there's there's some work to be done here, you know, but that, that Mary is the model in as much as she says, let it be unto thy servant according to thy will. That always is the, giving birth to Christ, always giving birth to Christ. And that was what Jordan was saying. It's like, yeah. wow, man, that's that's profound. You know, that Mary's and this is what, you know, origin of Alexandria says that, um, you know, what what you you know, what does it matter to me whether Christ came incarnate in the flesh if he doesn't come incarnate in my flesh? Yeah. In other words, if you know, maybe Christ came historically, he did come historically, you know, into the world, into the flesh. But what does that matter for me if Christ isn't born in me and doesn't become incarnate in me and in my flesh? And the me here, it's not like there's a me otherwise. I think that's what we've got to recognize. No, there's there's only, this is the only place I am me. Right. That my personhood, it, it becomes the reality of the full potential of, of who we are. That whatever we do with this topic, I do think that Ambrose has written a very good book. It's one of my favorite books that I've read in a long time. It's thoroughly researched. You know, it's it's academic. It's also very sort of, you know, easy to read. Um, but that his footnotes, I mean, he has maybe a thousand footnotes about maybe I think it might be more than a, a thousand footnotes. It's, it's it's just very thorough, and I do think it reminds me of uh, you know whenever Oliver Stone did JFK, you know, and he he just threw everything against the wall, and he just said, "Well, here's all the different stuff that people are saying about JFK, uh, and about his you know maybe there's a conspiracy." Uh, but but there's some, definitely some strange stuff going on, you know. And here's what all the different uh, strange things are, and then you can decide, you know, what you think about. It. Is there anything to this at all? And I do think that that's kind of Ambrose's approach. Whether he's drawing conclusions, just like Oliver Stone seems to be drawing the conclusion that yes, in fact, there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president by you know the CIA that he was about to try to abolish. You know, just whenever you read the mountain of evidence that Ambrose presents there's at least something weird going on the idea that we had was to just lay it out you know lay out the book how does he lay out his chapters and just have him explain it and to to just do like a little disclaimer maybe even at the beginning to say uh you know come along with us within this thought experiment this is what theology is we think difficult subjects through and we entertain crazy things like the resurrection and you know the incarnation and things that most people consider foolish um, but we consider to be true and while that might not necessarily be the case with this particular subject nonetheless i think it's okay to to wonder and to say well is this earth uh and the inhabitants who live here the only beings in the vast seemingly infinite universe I think that's a, a good question for theology to ask and if we're not alone then what might that mean for what you know maybe maximus the confessor and his cosmic you know sort of vision for um salvation so but nonetheless ambrose says several times in the book it's like well even if one of these things is true 
then we have an issue. <laughs> you know, if there was ever if there was ever one crash that was discovered, mm-hmm. if 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 one of the uh, you know abduction stories comes out to be true, well, then we're not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, if there if there's been metamaterials found, then there's flying saucers. You know, sounds crazy, but so does God becoming a human being. You know, so does mir- so do miracles. You know, he's coming at this from the perspective of, you know, there's a lot of people who have come forward and have been ridiculed and have been shunned from their churches, been maybe even persecuted to one degree or another, have been called liars, have been called demon-possessed. And this isn't just like once in a while, this happens all the time. And so Ambrose is looking at this from the perspective of, well, maybe Christians should come to the, come to like at least like an academic or if not more defense of these people who have been made fun of and, and been sort of discounted and because that's the hard thing it's like well if you're talking to someone as a christian who claims to have had some sort of sighting or like i have you know or an experience you know are you are you going to call them a liar maybe but if a thousand people come forward and these are just regular people some of them are just christian ladies you know working in their kitchen like betty andreessen or whatever cooking food are you going to call everybody a liar are they all schizophrenic? I guess the, the question is, certainly in Christianity, we land on faith. It does have, obviously, revolutionary implications for us. That is my main question here is, well, I, I'm not sure that having faith in UFOs or arriving at belief in UFOs is of the same order and is uh, comparable to the implications of christian faith yeah and that's a fair point i don't know if we're talking about two different sorts of of modes of knowing or or what but whenever the copernican revolution happened it it had definite effects on theology right on cosmology the idea of worldview change is very much first of all i think the the recognition of worldview in christianity is a kind of given and the Copernican and revolution or the Galileo Newtonian revolution are clearly there's a, a worldview shift. And, and I mean, there I was a scientific revolution. They were the science that is the scientific revolution. And I mean, modernity, in other words, all these things come together, right? That you know, uh, with the enlightenment, the modern, you know, modernity, the scientific, you know, the paradigm shifts that happened in science and in. Um, philosophy these things are all interrelated with theology um it's not like theology is just right as you know like a static discipline that that stands outside of the different uh, evolutionary sciences and uh, and all the other advancements and um you know all sort of you know genetics and all these different things in other words like christianity has something to say about the scientific revolution you know and all of its different manifestations and, and I think that, that, you know, working that out is part of the project. And I guess that's my main curiosity here is, okay, uh, if there is something to say what that is, is it spiritual, is it material? And then judging the implications, the implications of the thing, the, the leaps that some people make, mm-hmm. I am sometimes, I sometimes mm-hmm. wonder about, Mm-hmm. Just because you you say, oh, there's this unexplained phenomena, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much worldview changing that's going to involve or the nature of it. 
I think I, we need to be a little cautious about how we're working out the implications of arriving at that understanding of which I don't know what to do with it. I'll be honest. I, not, yeah, I, I, don't, got, I, I don't I don't either. I mean, I, I don't I, I really don't. But, I, you know, I haven't drawn any hard and fast conclusions either. But I will say this. The powers and the principalities function in ways that are very difficult, I think, to discern as they're happening. Um, but when we look back at think revolutions, like even with post-modernity, well, that posed like a big problem, you know, for the church in some ways that we had to work through. And it actually, I think at the end of the day, it has um, been help, helped us, you know, to elucidate the faith and to maybe move forward theologically. And it was a revolution, I think, in some ways, wouldn't you agree with philosophy, like just the the inevitable terminus of modernity? you know, becoming post-modernity, that was something that the church, you know, sort of um, had to work through. If there are extraterrestrials, and that I do think that a lot of people are going to probably wonder and say, well, what if they created us? What if they seeded us? What if, so you know... That, that's that's where it, it... So we're making grand leaps here. Right. And, right. and, and to compare this to the Copernican revolution... Well, mm -hmm. I think we're pretty certain that the Earth is not the you know the center of our system. That the sun right. is there. Right. That, that's a pretty hard and fast understanding. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that we're working with the same sort. Of it doesn't have the same story attached to it, right? It's like the the Copernican Revolution doesn't have uh, that sort of story that comes with something like what we were just talking about right where it's like oh you know that we were created um, by another race and that they gave us religion to you know uh, keep us from destroying ourselves and stuff like that well that's a story that's coming with you know or a theory or whereas like what you're saying with the heliocentrism is just a cosmological fact hey ambrose you sound good, good. morning good to see you good morning thanks good to see yeah. you guys too yeah uh, thanks for coming on we're excited. We've been we've been uh, talking about all sorts of different things uh, as we were waiting, and I just want to say thank you, you know, for coming on, and thank you for the work uh, that you've done with your book, a uh, Angels, Alien. Nope. See, I always screw it. A Angels, <laughs> Archons, and Aliens. I love the book. I loved it. It was such a fun book to read. It was very well done. I thought very thoroughly researched. I think you have over a thousand footnotes. Uh, but it's not purely academic, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to read and it just provoked so much, I guess, wonder in me as I was reading through it, you know, complete with, uh, you know, declassified top secret, uh, memos from top ranking military and other officials and pictures of officials and drawings and artwork and, uh, you know, a thorough analysis of various facets of the different ancient texts and, uh, including the Old and New Testaments. And I even love the aesthetics of the typeset. Um, and it's just one of my favorite books that I've read uh, in a long time. No, no matter what we do with this subject, and no matter where we come out on it, you know, I'm not sure that Paul and I have drawn any sort of hard and fast uh, conclusions. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think that your work is just well done. And I, I would just heartily recommend it to any of our listeners, just if they want to learn more about ufology and uh, the different stories and, and and things like that, which are, there's just so many entertaining, if for no other reason, like the, it, I just found a thoroughly entertaining work. The way I discovered you was through your work on Origin of Alexandria, um, which you've done a lot of, you know, writing on origin. And um, I think many of us 
pretty much just consider you an authority uh, to one degree or another on Origin of Alexandria, whom I also share a, an affinity with, and and so does Paul. We're deeply appreciative of of his work. So the first question we have for you is, you know, what do you love about Origin? And, you know, how did he influence you both theologically and, and maybe even when it comes to the topics that you, you are going through in your book? Yeah, since your listeners might not know who I am or anything like that, I'll, I'll kind of begin with an overview of my Christian experience thus far. I was born in New York and raised Christian from birth. And throughout my life, I personally experienced uh, 10 different denominations throughout three different states, uh, which include like the Pentecostal Assemblies of God, a full preterist, independent Bible Baptist Church, Calvary Chapel, Fire Church, which is charismatic, Brethren in Christ, Fundamentalist, King James Only Bible Baptist, Sovereign Grace, Presbyterian Church of America, Liberty Church, uh, which is like a, a local Presby- Presbyterian kind of methodology in uh, the Philadelphia area. And then now uh, Eastern Orthodox, OCA. Um, I've been intensely studying the Bible for, I would say, my entire adult life, wanting to learn everything I could about the text, literally listening to sermons for eight hours a day. It was an obsession. This desire to breathe the scriptures is kind of what low church Protestantism, as you know, instills in their people, for better or for worse. (laughs) I mean, I wish... I wish some people would probably put down the Bible and pick up a history book, but but my spiritual journey is one only one example of where that philosophy of Bible might lead. But uh, about origin, uh, knowing this background of mine, I was always taught what I would call like the low IQ, like Wikipedia version of origin, right? Which is like the the basic narrative that origin was some arch heretic that screwed everything up. Nobody ever liked him. Allegory right. bad. Uh, universalism would send you to hell. Right. And not to mention, he cut off his pee-pee, you know. Right. <laughs> Supposedly. What, what a weirdo. Right? Yeah. Uh, I bought into all that mm. uh, before I actually read him and his spiritual descendants, like Gregor Nisa and all that. I looked into the sources people would use to support this stuff, like Jerome, Epiphanius, Eusebius. Um, and I realized it was kind of a gigantic mess and that something tragic had occurred here. One of the first things from Origin I remember reading was his interpretation of the Witch of Endor episode and whether it was uh, truly Samuel or a demon pretending to be Samuel. And what Origin said was, and I'm not making this up, what he said was identical to my own rationale when I read the text for the first time when I was like 19. And the more I read Origin, uh, the more I personally related to the way that he thought about the text. And he very quickly became my primary teacher who showed me how to channel the intellect and reason into the text as a guardrail, preventing people from getting wrong ideas about the divine. I love his many edifying insights and pastoral heart. I started devouring his writings to such an extent that I ended up being in a position where I could begin writing my own mystical commentaries on the Bible in Origenian fashion. And years ago, I don't know if you read this essay of mine, but I wrote a 30-page tutorial on how to do it for the benefit of clergy. It's pretty obvious that this is probably what happened to Origenians like Gregory of Nisa. The thing that struck me the most in my origin studies is the extent to which Origen 
is embedded into the fabric of historical Christian development. And I think even historical scholars don't understand the extent of this because they're, they're not themselves very educated on Origen's primary source material and, and his followers. For instance, it was paradigm shifting to see that not only did Athanasius, for instance, call Origen a church father and see him as a source of authority against Arianism in De Deprecatis 627, but these theologians did not have a flat view of scripture. Contrary to my evangelical upbringing, if evangelicals knew what the most influential Christians believed about the Old Testament in the fourth century, uh, they would think it was probably like scandalous Marcionite heresy or something. For example, I mentioned this in the book, Gregory of Nyssa in Life of Moses 2, 91 to 92, says that a literal reading of the Exodus narrative is essentially irrational, incoherent, and makes God evil. Yeah. And that's why we should allegorize it instead with a kind of internalized introspective mysticism where slaughtering children becomes transformed into slaughtering the beginnings of sin in the heart and all that. Yeah, very cool. And it's not just Neeson doing this, uh, allegorizing away the obvious evils of the Old Testament was standard practice for Christian scholars of antiquity. And this is made most clear in Origen when he says in Homilies and Joshua 15.1, where he says, quote, unless those physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history would have ever been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ who came to teach peace so that they could re be read in churches, unquote. Hmm. Now, this is radical stuff, and this was paradigm shifting for me. Remember, Origen represented the foremost anti-Marcionite position, mm -hmm. and he was the one suggesting that a flat view of Scripture would basically turn God into Satan. That's right. I mostly blame John Calvin for, for derailing all of this. <laughs> <laughs> we mostly b blame John Calvin for everything, so don't yeah. worry. <laughs> I might be a little biased, but... <laughs> uh, and Calvin did explicitly name Origen in his commentary on Galatians 4.22 mm -hmm. to be a, kind of like an exegetical antagonist to uh, allegory. Didn't Martin Luther say something too, like there's not a word about Jesus Christ and all of origin or some silly thing like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Erasmus vehemently disagreed with that. Yeah. 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 He didn't, he say something like there's more truth in, in one page of origin than in yeah. 10 page of Augustine or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of originians, I know you guys just recently interviewed Jordan Wood mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think I've ever met anyone else who so closely parallels my own life journey mm. when it comes to like beginning and low church fundamentalism and the literalist mm -hmm. tradition and then and then like ending up being taught by origin mm. and being convinced of like universalist eschatology mm -hmm. yeah so I, I feel like a kind of parallel journey with jordan the kind of kinship there mm. <laughs> yeah very cool so obviously he's influenced your your understanding of christianity of how to read the scriptures um, of just how to think, you know, and um, he's done the same for me. I think he's done the same for Paul and for for many of us. And certainly of the just the entire Christian Christian tradition is just built upon the foundation of uh, didn't miss the blind called Origin the Thirteenth Apostle, you know. But in terms of your book, you know, so so coming out of this background, you know, working with Origin, and then you you come out with this sort of, I'm sure some people would think it's really weird or whatever. It's, it's, it's definitely yeah. um, kind of out there in some ways or whatever. What got you into UFOs after re researching and, and working with origin? Yeah. It may, it may sound strange to hear somebody 
pivoted from origin studies to UFO studies. Uh, but of course, for those such as yourselves who actually read origin, uh, it's not much of a stretch after all. Few contemplated the notion of many worlds and the, the true nature of the lights in the night sky more than origin. As you know, I opened the book with a quote from Monfort's Principles. It's also worth mentioning that the Greek title of that text is periarchon, which is, if translated faithfully straight from the Greek rather than Latin translation, it's perhaps more accurately translated as on the archons. Mm. And a title which coincidentally also applies to my book. <laughs> yeah. So to echo a line from uh, Dr. Diana Pasolka's book, American Cosmic, the study of religion can get pretty weird. No doubt. And so I embrace the weird stuff, which Charles Fort described as the quote-unquote damned data, the data mm. that society damns to the, to the sideline now, as a, a necessary component for uh, correctly understanding our reality. Anyway, studying biblical scholarship led me to studying the uh, inherently related Mesopotamian scholarship, and such as the work of uh, Thorkild Jakobsen, uh, Wilfred Lambert, Heinrich Zimmern, Stefan Nowicki, John Day, Mark Smith, Stephanie Daly, Michael Heiser, and so on. The information I gathered from these authors essentially became chapter six of my book. And it was during my study of ancient Mesopotamia when I discovered uh, Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote a bunch of books I haven't read. <laughs> but I discovered general concept of the ancient astronaut hypothesis by reading, by reading about him. So contrary to how most people seem to react, I took this proposal as a serious consideration and thought that whatever the truth may be, we have a deeply existential need to know if this hypothesis is probable or not. Since we can't come close to proof regarding prehistory, we must deal with probability and simply laughing at the, the weird hair guy from uh, Ancient Aliens isn't gonna cut it. The fact is more and more people are becoming convinced by this explanation and we should try to find out why and whether it's popular Christian thought that has some things wrong. And my book goes into this quite extensively, as you know. Uh, when you mention your book, I have to admit, I've read parts of it. I have not gotten through the whole thing, Ambrose. But uh, sure. And so for those of us who are slightly uninitiated, can you give us the broad layout of how you structured the book and where you're going with it? Sure. After a long preface and an introduction, uh, the first chapter is titled Refuting Debunkers, which is where I go through um, over 20 common arguments people use to dismiss the subject and not take it seriously. I knew I had to kind of get that out of the way uh, right at the beginning, or else readers might convince themselves that there's no reason to read the rest of the book. And when we, when we say debunkers, these would be people that are simply denying that there is the evidence for aliens or for uh, UFOs. So they're debunking their, just the whole concept entirely. Right, right. So I would, I would probably make a distinction between debunkers and skeptics. A skeptic is somebody who doesn't want to make up their mind right away and wants to investigate further and all this. A debunker is more like somebody who is trying to convince themselves 
that something isn't real. And so these people kind of come up with the most ridiculous explanations that don't account for any of the data uh, just to kind of come up with some prosaic explanation of something. Uh, and and it, it just comes across as disingenuous and, you know, all of that. So um, I go through a lot, of, a lot of the common arguments that they use for that. And I guess so the, the part of this that, uh, and, and I think you bring this out, is that, you know, where at one time this was kind of a subject that wouldn't have even been brought up in mainstream media or, but now we actually have a, a official government spokesman coming out and saying, well, <laughs> there's something yeah. here. So I, I guess the point being, whatever this is, it's, it's no longer uh, just out of bounds for even mainstream understanding or even for apparently the United States government. Yeah, that's what chapter one is dedicated to. And then uh, the second chapter is is extraterrestrial evidence. So that's when I go through like a historical survey of aerial phenomena going back thousands of years. The third chapter is institutional myth makers, which explains why there was a global cover up of the subject led by the United States. The national, the national security state, which I refer to as the narrative security state. Uh, chapter four is Christian history, uh, where I explain the the deep history of what what was considered scandalous speculation of certain forward thinking Christ Christian theologians. I also go over the bizarre details found in the New Testament and Christian, uh, mostly monastic, hagiographical accounts. Of aerial phenomena up until the present day and then chapter five is hebrew conceptions which is an analysis of aerial phenomena found in the old testament chapter six is mesopotamian ancestry which i i kind of alluded to earlier which is a comparative analysis of the hebrew bible and mesopotamian religions chapter seven is what i call esoteric history which presents some of the assertions about possible extraterrestrial origins of mankind on the planet and the possibility of subterranean civilizations. Chapter eight is exometaphysics, which gets into uh, Nikola Tesla's flying uh, wingless flying machine at the turn of the century. And then uh, Dr. John von Neumann's classified work for the U.S. Navy, known as Project Rainbow, uh, the science of telepathy, portals, time travel. That chapter, I just get into everything with that. Chapter nine is parapsychological connections, which gets into astral projection, uh, remote viewing, psychedelics, near-death experiences, and reincarnation. Chapter 10 is uh, the, the hypostases of archons, which is about the reported extraterrestrial phenotypes, so the different types of aliens that, that get reported as being encountered. Chapter 11, is extraterrestrial Jesus, which is all about exochristology. That is what alleged extraterrestrial contacts claim about the person of Jesus Christ. And the, the final chapter is Dark Horizon, where I kind of critically analyze all of the major uh, Christian interpretations of the UFO phenomenon thus far from a variety of denominations and show why all of them can kind of be reduced 
to uh, inadequate apologetics meant to maintain some received status quo. And I end with a speculative look into the, uh, shall we say, uh, Aquarian future of the Christian religion. And by Aquarian, can you define that? In like a lot of like new age circles, they kind of refer to the age of Aquarius, which is kind of like the next the next epoch of human civilization. And it's going to be like a kind of a shift in uh, human development or something. But it's kind of just like a, a shorthand to refer to the, like the next future age of mankind. And is it an exploration of that or an advocation of that? That, that part is really just like a speculative look into where Christianity could be headed in the future, just in the future, like when certain things become uh, more normal with like a, just like a global mindset, a globally united planet. I mentioned how Christianity just as, as a, as a religion wasn't really ever intended to stay in Jerusalem, right? It's like a, a, a globally minded faith. And so it's like we're at this point of like, where where is the Christian religion going from here? What's the end game, right? That's that's kind of like what I just kind of lay out in the last chapter. Okay, but, yeah. My introduction to UFOs is not very exalting. Uh, in the uh, as a young man, I actually <laughs> met a man who built UFOs. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> He was a, a man in Phoenix, Arizona. He had a, a wide assortment of UFOs and just enjoyed the publicity that he could generate from his various machines. Some of them were pretty crude. He actually built uh, gyrocopters and sold gyrocopters, but then from the gyrocopters was able to fashion all sorts of one, one was a very crude and kind of saucer-looking one. The others that actually got a lot of publicity were actually balloons that were shaped like UFOs. And he had newspaper stories. I remember one particularly over Tucumcari, New Mexico, in which he flew his balloon. And I think it was uh, it had nothing to do, but the, pow the power went happened to go out in a portion of the city and of course the newspaper stories make the immediate connection part he wanted me to come along and cite his ufos and report it i never did it but it, he, he just had a good time with it and so uh with that and obviously that doesn't account for a lot of the sorts of things that you're describing but i i think that one has to acknowledge there there has been a lot of deception in the mm -hmm. area and yeah. and uh, a leaping to an understanding. And so I guess my question for you is, you've clearly been convinced, and I'm wondering what has been most convincing? What is the thing that has uh, been the convincing evidence for you? Yeah. Can I just jump in just super quick, just to kind of temper? So that was Paul's introduction, you know, yeah. to, to this. Mine was a little bit different. Uh, it actually was a lot different. Um, so I'm going to kind of go out on a limb and tell this story. But um, I was it was about the summer of 1996. I was sitting on my dad's porch 
It was in Steubenville, Ohio, on Lincoln Heights is the neighborhood. Um, it was a very beautiful blue, no clouds in the sky type day. Um, and I was just sort of sitting there, just kind of maybe daydreaming or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden I saw something um, very high up in the air and it was just sort of uh, hovering there. And I thought, you know, what's that? You know, it, it didn't look like a plane. Well, they probably had military drones and things like this back in 96. I'm not sure about that, but um, it, it wasn't anything that I had ever um, seen. It was very, it was very high. It, it was grayish and it, it looked strangely sort of aerodynamic, but, but not in a, not in like the way that we make things look aerodynamic. Yeah. That was the, what I was thinking in that moment. I was just kind of thinking, what is this? And it was, um, <clears throat> I can still picture it. It was there. And then all of a sudden, whatever this was, it shot off and traversed the entire sky within, I would say maybe a second, I would, I would no more than two seconds, but probably more like a second, but it, the, it just, it went from standing still to just completely shooting off, you know, over the sky. It didn't make any sound. It didn't have any sort of uh, propulsion that I could see. There was no plume. It was it was the most shocking thing that I um, had ever seen, like in the skies, you know. And I, I was just left wondering, like, what on earth was that, you know? And it was it was one of those situations where I didn't really want to tell anybody because, for the same reasons that I'm sure many people don't want to talk about it, I didn't, th you know, think that people would believe me. I, did, I thought people, if they did, they would just make fun of me or think that I was high or crazy or just whatever. But I was sober as a judge. Uh, once you see something like that, you can't unsee it. And so again, I'm I'm open. It's like I don't know if it was some sort of terrestrial or your military thing or, or whatever it was, but I can tell you this: it was like nothing I had ever seen in my life. And the speed was the shocking thing. The way that it went from standing still to just full speed, you know, traversing the whole sky without any type of sound. At first, I thought it was a bug or something in my eye, like you know, something gets stuck in your eye, and you kind of say, "Is there something in my vision?" And I kind of like wipe my eyes just to make sure, but there was nothing like hurting my eye. And so it wasn't that, you know, and I looked and I saw it and it was just as fast as I could see it. It was, it was gone. It was an amazing thing. So that's a very different kind of introduction than, you know, what Paul was describing where some, some guy is like trying to, you know, sort of make money and, um, you yeah, know, hoaxer. cause trouble, a hoaxer. Yeah. And so yeah. like that, that really, um, when you see something like that, even if you can't make sense of it, it you, you can't unsee it. And, and, it, and it's like, it, there's something that happens in you, or at least for me, where that provoked a, like a lifelong sort of like fascination with what in the world was that, you know? So whenever you read someone's book like yours and you see that there's like thousands of people who have had similar experiences or whatever, um, it kind of makes you feel a little bit better, you know? And I go from the point of not wanting to tell anybody back in 1996 to saying it on a podcast, you know what I mean? Uh, because right. it's it's now it's so sort of commonplace for these types of things and it's like again yeah. I, i'm not saying it was aliens or whatever i'm just i'm just saying i saw what i saw and it was some phenomenon that that i've never seen since and was was amazing but you know back to paul's question of i should of, i should say about bannock stuff uh if you saw his ufo you wouldn't mistake it for what you just described <laughs> yeah. the uh the saucer yeah. He couldn't manipulate it very well. He could kind of go up and down. Uh, the balloons, actually, uh, he got a lot more media coverage with his balloons. I think because, you know, you couldn't quite tell what they were up in the air. His goal, actually, he, he I don't think he ever did it. He was a pretty old man when I met him. This is back in, uh, this would have been in the 1970s that I first met him. 
his goal was he was going to build a, uh, a light airplane and he wanted to fly it across the United States upside down. <laughs> he was just a guy that he, he, he had a good time with his hobby. I don't think there was anything vicious or cruel in what he was doing, uh, but just the kind of playing on people's gullibility. Yeah, so I would say, I mean, hoaxers are obviously real. They take advantage of the the buzz. But yeah, like you can't you can't hoax a, a UFO that stays still and then shoots off like a bullet from a rifle in, in the sky. <laughs> you can't make a balloon that does that. So like the, the actual motions are very important for uh, UFO sightings. But the evidence that I found most convincing was like kind of like what Matt was saying, that there's no end to the number of testimony, documentation, credible witnesses to the phenomenon, even down to aerial abductions. But well, like once you read your, you know, 487th person saying the same things that others have said, you just kind of stop pretending like there's nothing to it. But I'm also someone who's very well read in ancient Christian literature, such as the sayings of the Desert Fathers and how Athanasius mentions in uh, chapter 11 of the life of St. Anthony about how the young Anthony of Egypt, probably around the year 270 AD, encountered a quote-unquote large silver disc parked in the remote Egyptian desert and was big enough to be blocking his route. I suppose I had a bit of a head start with this stuff because it's always been there in the religious literature that I've been reading for years. And the historical element to it is, to me, probably the most convincing aspect of it, because that shows that it's not a modern phenomenon that could be entirely explained by hoaxers. So that, that gives it a kind of historical uh, continuity. So that would that would be my, like, what's most convincing for me. What else, though? I mean, that can't be the only, I mean, that, that was convincing to me, too, by the way, reading through your book. And again, I, I would just encourage anybody listening, if you just want to learn more about this to- topic and kind of see, because Ambrose is so thorough at kind of laying out, I mean, it's like 828 pages or something like that. So um, it's something that it's a book that I plan on just going back to again and again, just to read the story. I mean, they're just great stories. It's full of all sorts of really cool, fascinating stuff. But the historical part was uh, that was really important to me, too, because I've read the, you know, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, of course, and the life of Anthony and all these different things. When you're not reading it in the way that you just described, you're not thinking like, oh, that was a UFO that Anthony right. saw. You're just, you don't, you don't, you don't kind of make that connection. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. right. And so what else, as you were going through, was such a strong evidence for you to, I mean, you decided to write a book on this, man. Like you went from doing theological studies and devoting your life to that, to, I guess, devoting the last few years of your life or whatever to this. And it's, it, it's mm-hmm. clearly from your book, it's been an enormous labor, I would say of love. And it, and what the other thing that struck me was, is that, you know, you're writing this to Christians. You make that very clear at the beginning, you know, you say, this is this is a a challenge to Christianity and 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 from your perspective in some ways, and not only that, but to the treatment of the people who have come forward 
you know, and and have been sort of shunned by their churches or um, made fun of or called liars. And it's like, well, this is what Paul and I were talking about before you came on. It's like, well, if you have a thousand people sitting in front of you and, and some of them are like Betty Andreessen, who's just making food in her kitchen or whatever, and then mm-hmm. see something, and, you know, she's a Christian woman, whatever, you have all these different people. Are you just going to keep calling them a liar? Like one after another, like you're a liar, you're yeah. a liar, you're a liar. And it's like, I think that I felt your heart coming through that because it's like, Christianity stands or falls upon witness testimony. Right. You say that in your book, you know, that to me was a way to frame it to go, well, yeah, I've probably done that to a degree too, where I've been like, man, these people are, you know, some of them are like, there are just like you point out in your book that the, the one thing that you can say about people is like, oh, well, they're just schizophrenic or, oh, they're just delusional or they're hoaxers or whatever. But of course you can say the same exact thing about the Christian churches throughout the world. You can say that there's mm-hmm. been schizophrenics and hoaxers yep. and liars and um, you know, people just trying to make money or whatever else. So that was actually like a, a pretty kind of cool and convincing way to frame the discussion. I thought it kind of helps you look at it with more of a charitable perspective. But what I guess kind of struck me is, is you clearly love the Christian tradition, theology, things like that. So for you to write a book like this and to kind of put yourself out there, you know, in a way where, yeah. um, you know, you could be the object and, and probably will be the object of scorn or dismissal or shunning or Christian friends, you know, sort of saying, oh, Ambrose has just gone off. He's finally gone off the right. deep end, you know, right, right. Um, yeah. and they can say the same thing about us for having this podcast of like, oh, they finally yeah. gone off the deep end over there forging yeah. postures. They're talking about UFOs and blah, 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 you know, and it's it's like I get that. But yeah. um, you, I, for me, it's like you have to respect the work. I mean, that's I read, you know, it's like I read a lot of this stuff and so whenever i read that when i read your book i was like well whatever we're gonna do with this like you gotta respect the work whether you and i I was liking it um before you came on to um like oliver stone when he did jfk you know he kind of threw everything against the wall right and and and, and, to see what sticks and it's like well as a as a viewer of that movie you're kind of left with your own decision to make it's like Clearly, Oliver Stone thinks that there was some sort of conspiracy that the CIA, uh, which was about to be abolished by Kennedy, you know, they killed him. Right. And then he kind of just throws all this stuff against the wall and says, "Okay, you you just need to decide. But it seems like there's something to it. Right. It's like when you watch JFK, you're like, boy, they put Alan Dulles on the Warren Commission. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a stupid decision was that? I mean, it's crazy. Right. To me, when it came to like the convincing evidence or whatever, it's kind of like that JFK type scenario where it's like you read yeah. this giant book and you go, man, there's all kind of declassified top secret documents that are right here. And they're, they're by like admirals of the South seas of, you know, the Pacific. And it's like, these aren't just like some, some, you know, private running around. I mean, right. these are like top people in the government, in the military, in writing, talking about some of this stuff. And so when you, when you couple the history that you were just talking about in the literature with, uh, you know, the eyewitness accounts with the declassified documentation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you just kind of keep piling it on much like Oliver Stone and JFK. It's kind of like the, the, the viewer or the listener or the reader or whatever is left with, it's a clear decision almost that you got it. Like the, there's at least something to this is that, right. that's how I came away with it. Yeah. And, and that's why kind of like the book is so big. I wanted the quantity to be an element of the persuasion. So like when you when you read through like hundreds and hundreds of pages, what are you going to say? It's all it's all fake. <laughs> I mean, the, the commander, David Fravor, I, I would say that for me, that was like definitely one of the most convincing, like 
um, you can maybe get, tell the quick story of Commander David Fravor. But anybody who wants to listen, he had a very you know famous interview with Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan Experience. He had a um, another interview where he goes on, and I mean, this guy has impeccable credentials. He's a top. He was a Top Gun pilot, and he was the leader of a squadron. You know what I mean? He he was like this guy struck me as someone who has integrity and who knows what he's talking about and is talking about physics and engineering. And he has all this experience flying, you know, for the United States Navy as a top gun pilot. And he just seems like no nonsense or whatever. He has nothing to gain um, and everything to lose by telling this story. We have the radar data and stuff like that. You get the famous Tic Tac video that you, everyone can see. And it's like, when you listen to someone like that, what am I going to say? Like you're, you're, you're a liar. It's like, it doesn't even, that doesn't, seem right to me right yeah and and that's like that's kind of the point i wanted to make clear in the book is that at some point a if you're continuing to deny and deny and deny witness testimony you're essentially eroding your own faith because like you like we mentioned already that the christian faith is founded on witness testimony christianity wouldn't exist without it it's just kind of my approach i don't want to ever be guilty of double standards. I, I think everyone should be that way, but <laughs> not everyone is. But that's my own like heart is I don't want to uh, give a, a a wrongly placed criticism to something that I'm also guilty of. Right. So so my my own understanding of my faith was central to my investigation of this, like with these uh, witness testimonies and stuff. But yeah, Commander David Fravor, he was the the, the commanding pilot of the 2004 incident, which I kind of like briefly mentioned it in the book just because of how frequently it's talked about. It has been talked about since 2017. That's like all I, anyone ever talks about is this incident. So I kind of just like, all right, I'm not going <laughs> to give too much time to that. But yeah, like I think it was on, what was it? The Weaponized podcast, one of the episodes where one of the the Navy guys said that David Fravor is essentially the closest thing to the Tom Cruise character in Top Gun <laughs> in the United States. You know, uh, it doesn't really get more credential than that. But and then you also have like Ryan Graves and Alex Dietrich, some of the other pilots that were involved in that incident. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like there's there's too many credible witnesses to this. It is the Lex Reedman podcast that David uh, or that uh, Commander David Fravor also appeared on where he goes. Yeah. It's like a two and a half hour interview. And again, I guess there just comes a point for me that it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, he himself is saying, you know, it's not like it's just us saying, what are the, what is this? It's the Pentagon. It's the it's the people in charge who are going. Yeah, we've determined that it doesn't belong to uh, you know an enemy state. It doesn't it doesn't have any of the characteristics of anything that we know to exist. The way that it moves, the speed at which it you know moves, all this different stuff. And it's like, well, who am I to tell Commander David Fraver that like you're you're full of crap or whatever? Like it just seems kind of yeah silly in, in some way and but and that would that would be one thing if it was just one guy maybe you could maybe you could say oh you know that's that's silly whatever but whenever you have a bunch of commander david fravor types you know coupled with all the other evidence that you're setting forth the reader can't help but to think maybe there's something to this and again right. we might not be you know drawing any definitive conclusions and saying that um you know making some of the leaps even maybe that you're willing to make you know but the reader nonetheless is left with such uh yeah. it's like you know reading the bible or something right it's like you come away with it and you're like I, you know is there something to this or not mm -hmm. 
You know, part yeah. part of this, and <clears throat> this is kind of a, a a side note. This seems to have come into popular imagination. That is a bit surprising to me. I lived in Roswell, New Mexico, on the Air Force base that was closed and they moved the base. As a high school student, we lived there on the base. Uh, it was no longer, you know, it was just, a, there, there was an airport there. And I've never heard of any of this. Uh, I lived in the, in the very what, place. What year? That was in the 1970s, yeah. In the 70s? Yeah. So I, it's kind of surprising to me. Now everybody talks about Roswell. Well, wait a yeah. minute. I live, I live there. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I lived on the very site, and I never yeah. heard this. And so it's kind of interesting that this has come uh, to people's attention, where for at least, you know, I don't know that I was any more oblivious than anyone else, but no one was talking about that when in, when I was in Roswell. Yeah, by by the seventies, that that would have been the case. The military really had that subject on lockdown by then, especially after because nineteen sixty nine was was when the the Condon report kind of concluded there was nothing to this, and 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 that I go over in the book that that was just a complete like CIA driven fiasco that essentially ended the conversation as far as the public's concerned. There was maybe one or two organizations that were still active, NICAP, which was kind of one of the earliest. Donald Kehoe uh, was a, a Marine Corps major that kind of was one of the early, early advocates for the UFO subject. He kind of began NICAP and all that. By the, by the 70s, NICAP was falling out of favor and APRO was really, was really the, the remain, the, the last bastion of like UFO studies. The, the common narrative is that it wasn't really until 1980 when Bill Moore published the first definitive Roswell book. And that's kind of what brought Roswell back into like public consciousness. But yeah, like Roswell right from the start, it was like crash happens, an article comes out saying that the military got a flying saucer, a saucer shaped craft. They immediately like within a day retract the article and cover it up. Yeah, it just goes from there. I think I should mention that people need to understand that the government, the government is not one thing. So like back back in 1947, it was Roswell Army Airfield. And they, they were the first kind of they, they were the only ones with like nuclear weaponry at the time in the world, really. And that that, that was like June, July 1947. And then September of that year is when everything changes with the, the National Security Act. And then that's when the CIA is created and, and the entire restructuring of the military. But right from the beginning, like since the early 50s, you have factions in, in the government. So it's not like, you know, everyone, like the Air Force, the, the CIA, the, the Army, everyone's united on the UFO subject. It's like there are factions within the military of some people who want to cover it up and other people who want to disclose it. And that's been the case since the beginning, and it's still true today. This is what I think people don't get when they are trying to figure out, like, why now? You know, why is it? Why is there seem to be a a, a, ch a shift in the conversation and all this? Well, a lot of the old guard died. A lot of like the, the people who kind of uh, were in charge of the cover up and 
all of like the 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 kind of first wave empire group you could say the people trying to maintain status quo they they died off so there's like new people in in these positions the kind of dynamics are shifting a bit and so you have people now like Christopher Mellon Luis Elizondo and like a lot of these public figures that are being interviewed now they they're trying to to overcome the the uh what I call the empire group people who are trying to like cover it up still I, I would put like Bobby Ray Inman in that category of of that group so so this is still a fight it's still a back and forth some some people want this out some people don't and so um that's that's something that I think people should really understand that it's not the government is not one thing with one opinion. Yeah, it's kind of like that, the, it's kind of like the church true. fathers, right? It's like where we imagine the church fathers, like the holy fathers, are this monolithic thing. Yeah. It's like no, they were all saying all sorts of different things, and it's mm-hmm. not like you know, based upon the the research in your book, it's like well, it could be that the Department of Defense knows things that they're not sharing with the other agencies, and vice versa. They all seem to kind of have their little groups where yep. they're all. You know they're not really that that's part of the problem and even some of the legislation it look, seems like that is trying to be pushed for now is that there's a sharing of information and stuff like that because that precisely has not been happening yeah overclassified there yeah, are yeah. people in one uh agency with completely different interpretations like 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 you'll have one person in a group within an agency that gets read in on a classified special access program and then the person sitting next to them isn't so you have compartmentalization to such a degree where you have these like special access programs within special access programs and it's it's ridiculous the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing you're describing what i was just commenting on there is a apparently an effort not to release this information mm-hmm. but it seems like the faction that are that are squelching it have sort of an all-powerful sway that is more powerful than presidents, yep. uh, than leading, you know, figures in the government that is sort of inexplicable in itself. I think what they do, let's say, I think I think you're right that the power dynamics are skewed in favor of those who want to cover it up. And whenever like a disclosure-esque person within the military wants to get read in on it, they want to disclose the information, right? The Empire Group, this is the gist I get from some testimony that they'll tell, that they'll read them in on it. But what they'll do is they'll explain all of all of the possible ways that this could be a disaster. And then they end up converting them. And, and, and then the disclosure person ends up converting and becomes somebody who agrees that this should be covered up. That's kind of the gist I get. Yeah. What's your What's your opinion, Ambrose? On you know, and I, I think this is a question that a lot of people have: is why, why, you know, why would they not just um, tell us? Is it Is it because of you know? Is it economic? I mean, I would guess that it has something to do with economics and order and things like that. But like, why Why are they so hesitant and reluctant if this is actually happening to clue uh, the rest of the people in? There There are a bunch of different elements to why the the empire faction does what it does and i i mentioned in the book that i don't i don't blame them like i understand their philosophy i do and 
So I would say the most the the most um, I would say existential reason is religious instability. That I would I would put that at the top of the list because telling people the truth will cause doctrinal turmoil among religious people who are going to be told their doctrines or understanding of history is almost entirely wrong, leading to you know existential difficulties of human value. And remember, back in the in the late forties, I think eighty five percent of the country identified as Christian. Like it, the dynamics have changed pretty pretty uh, drastically. But some of the claims from, like allegedly from the extraterrestrial beings, are pretty extreme. But then it's not just religious instability; it's economic instability, political instability, social instability. Uh, military defense instability, like just economics. If you if you start, you know, normalizing, you know, anti gravity propulsion, th- there goes the petrodollar, right? Disclosure is inherently leads to globalism, which is a threat to nationalist philosophy. Social instability, you know, you have the 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which is you know a case study on that. Um, but but even at the most basic level, military defense instability, it is the job of the Air Force to have a lockdown on our airspace. That's their job to defend us, right? Well, they can't. They didn't prevent it in the 1967 Malmstrom Air Force Base incident, right? UFO comes, shuts down all 10 of the, the ICBM warheads. They do the same thing at Echo Flight. They're over in Russia turning them on <laughs> so so clearly uh well like what would happen if if the the air force went on national television and said yeah ufos are real they're uh meddling with our defense capabilities and we can't do anything about it nobody wants to say that <laughs> so i i understand the empire philosophy i do but i i'm not convinced it's it's better than the alternative and so that's why I kind of have, I lean more towards the disclosure element. What is the alternative? Uh, disclosing the truth that people are not crazy when they talk about, you know, seeing UFOs over their house or, you know, all this kind of stuff. Telling the truth would restore some faith in, in military institution, which is desperately needed. But yeah, I don't know how, I don't know if it's going to work. I guess my, part, my, of, part of the question in, in telling the truth is, that well certainly there's things that may have been hidden but apparently nobody knows the truth in other words there is not a, a comp- comprehension on the part of even the people that apparently are in the know and apparently there's not even a, a uniform picture of the implications yeah so there are um, different groups there are different military figures who are involved in different related projects. And what happens is this has been going on for decades where military people will go to like UFO conventions. Colonel Wendell Stevens of the US Air Force would host private conferences at UFO conventions with other military people, retired, current, and so on. And they would share information of like what projects they were involved in and uh, and so on and so forth. 
And there are these kind of networks of individuals that do have a lot of information. That's how a lot of it has been shared up until this point. There are, like for, for example, Richard Doty talks about this. There, there has been uh, DIA working groups that, like for example, there's one that investigates UFO abductions where agents of the DIA go out and interview people. Like the people don't know who they are, but they go out and interview people who claim to have been abducted and they have been keeping track of this information. And behind the scenes in the military, they are taking it very seriously and are trying to learn more and more. But um, a lot of the information seems to be locked behind private aerospace companies. And this is where things get tricky when it comes to like documentation, because like Boeing is not subject to FOIA. And so you have these all these contractors like Raytheon, EG&G, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman. These are the people that are actually doing the work. This stuff is so hidden in private industry that it becomes so difficult to get it out into the public. So that's where where we're at right now. Do you think, Ambrose, that uh, someone does in fact know the truth? I don't think anyone has the full picture. But there's a lot of people who have integral pieces of the puzzle. That's the way I, I see it anyway. In other words, like what I'm asking, and I, I think that your book kind of makes it clear, but in your opinion, does the United States military know that there's extraterrestrial intelligences? It all depends. There's, I, I would say, for one, like you have to be read in on a special access program. You have to have the clearances. Most people don't have that. So the majority of our military is not going to have a clue what's going on. It's only very specific types of people. That's why the uh, the the Eric Davis notes are so controversial. That just got put into a congressional hearing a year or so ago in, um, I want to say, 2002 or 2004, maybe. I forget. The early 2000s, uh, a physicist... Pentagon physicist Dr. Eric Davis had an interview with um, Admiral Thomas Wilson. This, these notes reveal that um, Tom Wilson, who is J2, Joint Chiefs Chief of Staff, and like top of the DIA, he tried getting access to UFO programs. He actually found it. He found UFO programs, tried getting access, uh, members of the watch committee sat down with him. All they wanted to know was how they fa- how he found them. That's all they wanted to know. Uh, Wilson was like, I need access. I'm responsible for oversight. And he's like, no, you don't have a need to know. <laughs> and so they, w- they wouldn't let him in. And so he was pissed. It's just unreal. It's unreal, yeah. But, but this is real. This happened. And so, like, he eventually, he essentially found, like, elements of so-called you know majestic 12 this is the the weeds of our military this is what's going on yeah so what are the range you know of the of the different interpretations of the ufo phenomenon in the the intro to my book i kind of list some of the major interpretations which are not mutually exclusive i might add but 
uh, they're you know extraterrestrial, obviously, so which means a, a rational creature whose origins are not from Earth. Intraterrestrial, which means uh, a rational creature who kind of currently lives in a subterranean location on this planet. Interdimensional, which is uh, a rational creature who primarily lives in a different plane or density of reality. Uh, Crypto-terrestrial, which kind of refers to a, a rational creature who lives alongside us, essentially like an elusive, endangered species would. Extra-tempestrial, which me means time travelers. Now, one could kind of uh, further expand this to include a variety of other interpretations. Of course, some believe it's all made up, none of it's real, but you can say it's a kind of government psyop hypothesis to cover up military secrets and crimes against humanity. Others might say it's a uh, it's an occult secret society doing this, like the Freemasons manipulating things behind the scenes somehow. Carl Jung at least initially believed a kind of uh, psychological projection of the human mind hypothesis. One of the proposals from the Theosophists early on was that the UFOs were remnants or descendants from the ancient Atlanteans who came here from Venus. So that's one belief. Others speculated that it's kind of a planetary poltergeist. All the Christians uh, basically put no effort into thinking about this. <laughs> and so, so the popular view from the evangelical fundamentalists out of California was that it's all just demons, uh, which of course doesn't actually mean anything relevant. So as you can see, there's a great many theories floating around of, of how to explain all of this. So Ambrose, uh, your book is called Angels, Archons, and Aliens, an assessment of the theological implications and psychological impact of the close encounters phenomenon. So what is your idea you know you you kind of put it in a way that uh crystallized it for me but can you explain your decision to create the term omni god the omni god was something i, I had to make out of necessity so the, the word god it's simply not good enough to distinguish between ancient henotheistic notions of deity from contemporary monotheistic notions of deity so when we today talk about the you know we, we use the word God, we mean a transcendental, bodiless being beyond being who has uh, the omni characteristics which qualify him as divine: omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, eternality, and so on. This deity, which you know back in the day, origin, the subsequent Orthodox camp referred to as the Father. This is kind of like the, the monarchy of the Father concept. The eternal begetter of all things, the generative source. Uh, this is what I named Omnigod for convenience. Uh, now, I'll get into why. Like, why the need for this term? So, in ancient henotheism, which was standard for pretty much every nation I was able to find, the deity at the top of the pantheon, they didn't see as an omni-god in, in the way we see it. 
but it was more like a, a military general or emperor among little g-gods that were stationed on the earth. For example, at the city of Nippur, Enlil, also called Elil, uh, was the patron deity of that city. At, at the city of Eridu, it was Enki. In Ur, where we learn about the Sumerian man that we now know as Abraham, uh, the patron deity of that, of that uh, city was the moon god Nanar, also called Nana or Sin, who was the son of Enlil. In Babylon, the national deity was Marduk. In Assyria, it was Asher. However, all of these places were filled with polytheists. Exclusive devotion to a nation's patron deity was not, according to my research, an indication of monotheism in the sense that we think of monotheism. Enlil, Marduk, Asher, they all have divine fathers, according to the literature, such as like the Enuma Elish. Uh, they're not unbegotten. Uh, many scholars would say that historically, Yahweh also fits into this category. So according to texts like Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, at least in uh, Dead Sea Scrolls 4Q37 and Septuagint manuscripts 848 and 106C, which lists him as a son of the Most High God, Elion, who was then given to Israel as a patron deity. So to make it crystal clear about identifying who we mean by God in relation to any historical investigations, the term omni-god is helpful to prevent anachronisms when the description of an ancient deity clearly does not reflect modern sensibilities about what divine characters are supposed to look like. So that's that's why I made that. I guess there's two ways of reading this history. You know, the same, I'm familiar with uh, in Japan two alternative interpretations uh, in regard to henotheism. And that is what evolved or what devolved from what. That there seems clearly to be, though, a break in religion as it is commonly understood, as with henotheism, and the notion of a god who's omnipotent, and not one of a party of gods or the supreme being of the gods. So I guess you could either picture that as uh, henotheism as a de-evolution from an originary belief or the arrival at an omnipotent God, the omni-God, uh, the God that is transcendent, is in fact an event that is itself progressive and evolutionary. Uh, yeah, this is, this is like a very complicated subject because there's so many directions you can take with it and i'm i'm certainly not claiming i have this figured out i'm i'm trying my best but the way i kind of see it is it seems to be that there's um kind of nationalists at the top of the political that the political elite of any kind of ancient city we have kind of the the, the kings the rulers their their staff or whatever they want uh primarily like military victory they want a 
supreme nation, like their concerns are about ruling. But then you have like the the common folk, the peasants who just who who would like rain to have their crops grow. They want a lasting marriage. They want food. They would be like the more polytheistic people who who really like we'll 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 pray to whatever god that works, mm-hmm. right? For our for our needs. And so you have this kind of distinction within uh, any particular culture or city. That's kind of the impression that I get when I'm reading this material, because clearly things get popular in different ages, we, sh- we could say, like, like clearly in the West, something changed. And now most people have a monotheistic perspective of God. But then you have in like the East, let's say in India, you have uh, an, an idea of like, you could kind of call it a mystical monotheism where the distinctions are really just avatars of one being, right? You have this kind of the avatar concept, which it may be the case even in the Mesopotamian literature where either in Babylon or Assyria, the Enuma Elish was rewritten to where the main character, the hero of the story, changes from Enlil to Marduk and then to Asher. And then the people kind of had this concept that, okay, so this other god here is just is an avatar of Enlil. And so it seems to be the case that that, that was at least one view. So it's it's a mixed bag, and yeah. that's part of the, the problem. In Japan, it's, you know, Amaterasu is the sun goddess. Yeah. And, of course, the emperor is thought to be the child of the sun goddess. That then has been taken up in state Shinto, so that there's a kind of, uh, as you're describing it, there's a very close tie between the religion, uh, the government, you know, kind of a nationalism, and mm-hmm. then there's a kind of break in the actual practice of the religion as you have it, so right. that you have on the part of the government and state Shinto the attempt to bring about a uniformity that is actually not there in the popular religion. I guess yeah. the I guess the the thing, and maybe my descriptions, you know, of henotheism as either being Evolu- uh, evolutionary or de-evolutionary, if we take an originist or a Maxian interpretation of Christ as being the center of history, that here then is the clear departure toward an understanding of God as we have him in. In other words, now we understand Yahweh as who he is in Christ, that here is the final and full revelation of God. And so that we might read this history neither as evolutionary or de-evolutionary, if we understand, well, actually the reality then is in Christ, and this is the center of our interpretation. And so too, with our understanding then of religion per se, how that religion functions, Uh, what religion even is. You know, religion is a word we all imagine. 
that we think we it, it means something. But of course, it it is such a vague term that it, it really just re- references a, a, a cultures and uh, understandings and, and worldviews that the religion is a, is a sort of support of. So I, I guess that that would be the place that I ultimately land in, in understanding even this the history of religions uh, is that the true, the final and full revelation is truly through Christ. And let me just add to that, Paul, that to me, what, what Ambrose is describing fits in quite nicely with, uh, say, David Bentley Hart's vision of St. Paul's, you know, cosmology and eschatology and things like that, where, you know, these what you described is, is that you have these different nations with their political, you know, gods and, and all this other stuff. But that for David Bentley Hart, he's saying that this is in, like this is like the most important facet for St. Paul of the gospel is that these gods, whatever they may be, whoever they may be, have been dethroned by our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That through his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, that the that all things are being ordered under, you know, his lordship, etc. So to me, it, it, it might sort of help us to understand, you know, what St. Paul's gospel, as you point out in other places, you know, can be kind of an ambiguous term depending upon the context, whether it's in Galatians or whether it's wherever else, you know. But then in other words, that these gods have been dethroned. But whenever I read your book, and we talked about this um, offline, I, I just couldn't help but to sense almost a bit of like an existential crisis, nonetheless. You know what I mean? That when you're confronted with this... Um, on the one hand, you have like the beauty of the the Christian tradition, the gospel, um, the hope that we share, things like that. On the other hand, you kind of get all the stuff that you're doing in your book, where you're kind of deconstructing some of the text and uh, what you know. We don't have to get into this now, but what you know might the implications of the Elohim plural be in the you know in the Old Testament and things like that. And it really gets super complicated. And you and I do think that in your book, it, it, it does a good job of kind of laying this out that this isn't as simple as maybe we we imagine it to be. It's actually extraordinarily complicated, especially whenever you figure in things like, I mean, I think it's really cool in an allegorical sense that Abraham, the, the national deity of Ur was called sin, for instance, or whatever. I mean, that's like a really amazing potential allegorical sort of gold mine, you know, nonetheless, like I, I did kind of, uh, there was like this angst or, or, or something that was being provoked after I, after I read your book. And I'm wondering if you dealt with any of that same sort of existential crisis that may have been provoked in you and how, how it's affected you uh, as you were getting into this as a, as a Christian. Yeah. I first want to deconstruct what existential crisis even means, because sometimes we forget the underlying mechanics of the words that we use. I would define an existential crisis as being when there's a conflicting deconstructive dissonance between what one learns to be true relative to what one already believes to be true. Anything paradigm shifting is going to cause some level of existential crisis. And the extent of the crisis felt is contingent upon the level of dogmatic zeal within the previously established belief. So so like now that we've established kind of my definition, I would say, yeah, I experienced an existential crisis with this subject. But I have to add, like I have consistently with the subject of Christian history or theology. I need to point this out because some people are going to be like, 
Oh my God, he had an existential crisis, everyone. Abort, abort, never learn anything new about UFOs or anything like that. So I need to emphasize that uh, this is a very normal process that any honest person will experience if they desire to learn anything new about the world around them. Uh, there are some children out there who have had their first existential crisis when they realize that Santa Claus isn't actually coming down their chimney to give them presents. And their parents seem to have a curious milk mustache or you know cookie crumbs around their lips. Here we have a paradigm shift which may cause an existential crisis in youth. Again, depending on how zealously they believe something, which happens to also be incorrect. Now, I grew up being told that I needed to zealously believe in young earth creationism, a flat view of the Bible, a literal cosmic torture chamber called hell, and so on. I have been in an existential crisis for the past 30 years. <laughs> so this subject is not a new experience for me. Uh, but the same old problem of zealous ignorance. So the older I get, the less zealous I generally become about certain things like history or metaphysics, because I've been zealously wrong too many times to count at this point. I think we yeah. could all we could all sympathize, Ambrose. Yeah, that that I think we've all been through a similar existential crisis. Yeah. I, that, like I said, I think any honest person would would experience that. The only way to not have one is to never learn anything new. To always believe you're right about everything. How is all this affecting you now? You know, especially in regard to your Christian faith and what all of this what what does all this might mean for theology for Christian theology? Yeah, so not much has changed, mainly because a lot of the claims like have not been formally verified to the public. That's precisely the battleground. That's the, cr the crux of the issue. Nobody has all the answers, and we're all on an arduous journey to synthesize the correct information correctly. And I have within me a deep desire to learn and to be informed. And I also like the intellectual challenge of discovery, but I am always incredibly frustrated when I have to, after much effort, admit that I don't have all the answers. And it's a very humbling experience, to be sure. But I'm learning to accept the fact that not all mystery can be uncovered. Um, some mysteries can definitely be uncovered. And I think many people are too quick to call something a mystery as a kind of justification for not having any curiosity for discovery. That's not at all what I mean. And those people definitely frustrate me. But what I mean is, after years of research, I am very confident that there has been, an, for example, an official UFO cover-up by the US government to get the public believing that there's nothing to any of this and it's all prosaic. All of the data I was able to find points to this position being true. However, there is so much revealing information that is still classified and hidden in private, like private aerospace companies or destroyed, like in the case of much of the MK Ultra documents. And thus, we remain in a state, kind of a limbo state 
of mystery until new revelations can be made by some inside leaker or formal disclosure effort or whatever. This feeling of being presently stuck in mystery when everything inside you wants to move forward is what I'm talking about, about slowly learning to accept, to build within myself more patience and endurance. It's interesting, you, you use the example of Santa Claus. And I think that some of the uh, people in the, the, uh, uh, to when they're referring to UFOs or these encounters, they actually use the term Santa Claus, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that is kind of interesting. Uh, which was actually my first existential crisis, that I, I was a thorough believer in Santa Claus. And, of course, what one wants to do is confirm the reality of this thing. Mm -hmm. And so as a child, we were I was about four or five. We lived in uh, at this point in Arizona. And we set off, me and a friend, I actually convinced a friend that I thought we could probably make it to the North Pole and meet the man himself and get this thing over once and for all. Yeah, a logical <laughs> thought. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, you know, with the, uh, with the UFO phenomena, I think there is that impetus. If this thing you know, is real. Well, I'd like to be, I'd like to take a ride in one of these things. I'd like to meet these folks. In other words, the impetus may be the same, and it is purely logical to invest in uncovering this kind of mystery mm -hmm. and in some way, you know, fitting it in to our understanding. And I guess that's the, the final question we have for you here. That I, I the the mystery poses itself with you know it gives us several possibilities theological possibilities you know uh, setting aside how we might interpret it yeah but what are the range of theological possibilities posed and in fact are there contra contradictory possibilities that are posed. Even if a small percentage of the assertions in my book are true, then it may have a profound impact on Christian theology, knowing what is popular belief currently. For instance, most Christians believe that the benevolent, what I call omni-god, created all things visible and invisible. That's in the, the Nicene Creed. That's not actually true in a literal sense. Because, like, for, for example, like, God didn't create my son's Lego truck. He, he did. Now, I know someone out there might be like, you know, but God made your son, and your son made the Lego truck, and therefore God made it. And like, no. <laughs> that would just mean God makes everything we make, including evil. So there are things that God did not make. And I, I go over the, the more mystical understanding of creation, like, that like it's like more along the lines of like Maximus the Confessor, but I do, I I do feel the need to remind people that humans are not the only intelligent class of being that creates things. The angels, archons, aliens, Elohim, Anuna, whatever you want to call, the higher life forms are also able to create things at a scale that we can't comprehend. So we don't exactly know what visible or invisible things were actually made by them. 
And so the more sophisticated type of Christians, let's say like the more educated, may not really care about any of the revelations because they're usually flexible and don't have a maximalist view of the Bible or tradition. And other religions, much like the uh, indigenous Native Americans or the South American Maya, uh, already believe that they came from star people. So it's not even a new idea for them. And this is why it's uniquely deconstructive for Christians more so than other religions. Not because it's a demonic conspiracy against Christians, but because Christianity has simply developed in a lot of ignorant and bigoted ways. For instance, uh, Giordano Bruno was killed by the old guardians of status quo in AD 1600 because he believed they were exoplanets. Uh, that was the principal reason for his execution, according to uh, Dr. Alberto Martinez. In 1550, the reformer Philip Melanchthon wrote against Nicholas Copernicus saying that heliocentrism is basically a slippery slope to denying what was believed to be a fundamentally geocentric gospel. Christ can't be going around dying on different planets, he reasoned to himself. If a 16th century Hindu guy comes along and is like, actually, we always believed there were other planets out there like ours. I'm sure the reformed fundamentalists back then would have been like, see, clearly heliocentrism is a demonic conspiracy meant to overthrow Christians specifically. To me, it's paranoid nonsense that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I mean, clearly something is broken here in the kind of Christian consciousness. The more rigid Christian or Muslim fundamentalists will surely view anything contrary to their own belief as spiritual warfare from the demons and jinn designed to torment them specifically because they are, according to what they tell themselves, well, I don't know, maybe standing shirtless in the mirror. They're the last bastion of faith on this God-forsaken planet. There's people who genuinely believe that. And I don't think I need to remind any of you that there's a fundamentalist found on every corner of this country. And in my experience, they kind of represent the majority of those on the lower, lower education end of the demographic. Yeah, I mean, that gets back to like, why, why cover it up, right? And, and in, in the final chapter of my book, like I mentioned, I, I do go over the various Christian interpretations thus far and uh, kind of poke holes into a lot of the, the reasoning that usually gets thrown around, which is, it's, it's always either either demons or friendly friendly neighbors from another planet that that will probably be baptized so there there is a materialist interpretation or a spiritualist interpretation is that broadly correct can can you get go more into what you mean by that well i'm just trying to to figure okay what what conclusions are people drawing i'm not saying what should be drawn but one of the conclusions could be spiritualist and so in typical fundamentalist and in fact i actually had a class in, i think it was in graduate school in which we covered ufos and and in that class it was demons you know that was mm -hmm. that was pretty yeah. much it 
But there could be a spiritualist interpretation, and I assume this is also what you're pointing toward, that it could be not malevolent, but in fact angelic, uh, you know, that there that it could be a kind of uh, positive spiritualism. So that we yeah. could so we could bracket that. And actually the materialist is not completely separate from that. A materialist understanding would, in fact, just say, well, this, uh, this doesn't pertain to spiritual beings. This pertains to, you know, just other creatures on other planets, you know, through evolution, that there's all sorts of creatures that have evolved. And I guess one that's kind of in between the two, if you, I'll add a third one, a kind of spiritualist, materialist understanding, is that we might that some might imagine, well, no, actually what we need to do is broaden out and reinterpret what we mean by spiritual. By spiritual, we often have the notion of a kind of disembodied, you know, mm -hmm. uh, figure, whereas what may in fact be spiritual is in fact the, the a materialist presentation of what we're taking to be, and or what is often taken to be an angelic being would that yeah. be the three broad ways of yeah. interpreting so i would say the first two kind of assumes a certain metaphysical paradigm a very dualistic one and then the third one you mentioned is is the critique of that paradigm i kind of talk about the third one in my book in the i think it's in the the exo metaphysics chapter where that's that's the central question is what do we even mean by spirit? What do we mean by by matter? We don't even really know what matter is. It, it all depends on like the kind of metaphysical paradigm you're, you're dealing with. And so like, for example, I talk about this one of this early figures, Dr. Uh, Newton Mead Lane, who was a parapsychologist in the 40s, who was basically one of the first, probably the, the first major figure to come up with the what is now known as the quote unquote interdimensional hypothesis that there's multiple dimensions like the uh, the, the UFOs are coming are phasing into our reality from a different uh, dimension he he called them the Ethereans he believed that uh, the UFOs were coming into Earth's atmosphere phasing in originally from either the etheric planes of Venus or Mars. He had a very sophisticated understanding back in the 40s uh, that even people today don't even still don't comprehend. They think that just because something is interdimensional, it means it's not extraterrestrial. Mead Lane already had this notion of multiple layers of dimension from each planet. I wanted to, to bring that out in the book because that is I think a, a, a missing element in the conversation. If something is true here, metaphysically, it's highly probable that it's also true somewhere else. If there's an etheric plane on Earth, there's probably an etheric plane on, on Mars, Venus, and the other planets too. So th those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. So when you get into like a lot of the metaphysics of like the theosophists and which kind of became like new age thought, they see reality on a, on on a spectrum of, you could call it, kind of ontological vibration. And this goes back to 
at the early turn, like the turn of the century, like 1900, there's a an anonymous work called um, the the Kabbalion. The metaphysics of the Kabbalion is actually very relevant to this, where everything is on a spectrum of vibrational densities. Our physical modality is a condition of this plane and you can change it theoretically and then you would phase out of this plane and enter a different one that doesn't mean you're not physical anymore it just means you're not physical any anymore here and so it's a very it's a much more complicated uh paradigm but it does show that there's that there is that third way where the the physical and the the or you could say the corporeal and incorporeal distinction is really just a matter of modality like like the differences of like ice and water vapor i, I found that interesting as you say that with material material reality is actually one of the most mysterious things there yeah. are that's what yeah. we know least about <laughs> absolutely and, and in science it's turned out to be a not only a mystery but a mystery with with a kind of seeming infinite depth. Yeah, that is, there's no bottom right. to to material reality. There is a kind of mind expanding interpretation that I've taken from this, or or potentially mm -hmm. taken from it. But of course, it it is uh, it, it is an interpretive. As Matt and I were talking, you know, with the the Copernican revolution. There's only a limited number of interpretations with it because of the solid data that is is developing. And I guess that's kind of where we're at with this, that we don't quite know what this is, but there are these potential understandings. Yep, I agree. Ambrose, we really appreciate you coming on, man. I know you got you to gotta yeah. go. Um, Thanks for but, having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great time. Uh, everybody should go Thank out you. and buy Angels, Archons, and Aliens, an assessment of the theological implications and psychological impact of the Close Encounters phenomenon. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold, I would reckon. And hopefully, Ambrose, we can get you back on to talk in, in depth maybe on some more of this stuff because it's sure. it's a conversation that we can definitely continue the, the, the depth uh, and the implications of, you know, it yeah. just seems it just fosters a really kind of interesting discussion that I'm not sure any of us know exactly quite what to do with with it. Uh, but it seems to be I sure don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but but it seems to be something that, that definitely could have um, implications for, uh, you know, all sorts of different our cosmology, like you said, history, doctrine. As we were talking, you know, um, offline, you know, I don't think that I think one could still hold to like a Nicene Christology and all that sort of stuff. And and I, I don't think that it would fit necessarily nicely into a pre-existing Christian paradigm, like all this new information. Uh, yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't think that that's what I came in with your book. I was like, OK, I can still, you know, Jesus is, is still <laughs> Lord, you know, um, you know, so um anything any closing any uh, how about for people who might be interested in learning more about this can you point can you point us in a, in a direction there's the weaponized podcast that's actually a new podcast by um investigative journalists out of nevada george knapp and um jeremy corbell that they they seem to have a lot of connections that have been coming out like pretty consistently whether it's like new videos that haven't been seen before and stuff they seem to be pretty deeply connected to insiders. And so I would definitely check them out.
they and George Knapp has a huge history in the subject going back from like the, the late 80s. Um, Richard Dolan is a good source for the history aspect of this. For like the indigenous material, I like uh, Montana University professor Dr. Artie Clark, who who she's a, a indigenous Native American woman, and she has two books, Sky People and Encounters with Star People. One of them is dedicated to talking to indigenous Native Americans about uh, UFOs, about like aerial encounters or whatever. And then the other book is her going into South America and interviewing indigenous Maya people about their beliefs, traditions, all of that. Very, very interesting. I, this book is also great. Alien Identities by Richard Thompson. Like, so my book is like the comparative with the Christian religion. That book is comparing the UFO stuff with, uh, with Hinduism. He, he does a great job. So, yeah, it's just there's some interesting material for you. Hey, it's been a fun conversation, Ambrose. I'm so so glad we could do yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I have been reading at your book. It, it is a long read. Yeah, it <laughs> is. I didn't, I didn't get it all done. Uh, yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, but I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep working at it. All right. It was so nice Paul. to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Have a okay. great rest of your day. All right. You, too. Bye. Bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.